And in some ways, this is the right way to think about self-deceptions in general, which is to ask the compassionate question, what is the origins of where this is coming from? What is the gap this is filling in people's lives? When we look with contempt at people who have self-deceptions, in many ways, what we're forgetting is we are not in the foxhole with them. And were we in the foxhole with them, we would very likely think exactly the same way they do. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, is it really such a bad thing to lie to yourself? It has to be, right? Aristotle taught us that knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. Is there an upside to delusion? I didn't think so until I heard the story of Joseph Enriquez. In the early 80s, Joseph hit rock bottom. His mom died, his dad got sick, his business floundered. He felt more alone than ever before, which is saying something because Joseph had pretty much always felt alone. He didn't have any close friends and he'd never dated, not because he didn't want to, but because he was too shy, too insecure, too easily misunderstood. He'd put his name on a few mailing lists for single men, hoping to meet the kind of woman he could settle down with. But all he ever got were letters advertising mail order porn. So he resigned himself to loneliness. But then one day, he got a different kind of letter. It was from a woman who said she was looking for a friend. She explained that she lived in the Illinois woodlands at a retreat for young women who'd all escaped troubled pasts and were now trying to make fresh starts with the help of decent, kind men. Joseph wrote back. Soon he was corresponding with several women from the retreat, learning about their lives, telling them about his. Occasionally they'd ask if he could send a little money. Not much, just 10 or 20 bucks, enough to cover the cost of writing supplies. They called it a love offering, and Joseph was always happy to chip in. After about a year, he got a letter from a new woman named Pamela. She said she'd grown up poor, married young, fled, and taken refuge at the retreat. She enclosed a picture of herself, big eyes, gravity-defying Farrah Fawcett hair. Joseph was smitten. They started exchanging letters, letters that were, for the most part, pretty bland. She asked him for car advice and told stories about her pet poodle, Gigi. But they could be deep, too. Joseph shared things with Pamela that he'd never told anyone. He wrote to her about the shock of his mother's death and the pain of his father's illness. And Pamela wrote back to say that she got it. She'd cared for ailing family members herself, and she knew what a burden it could be, how lonely it could make you feel. Joseph had always believed that he possessed many fine qualities. He was warm, sensitive, kind, loyal, but no one had ever paid enough attention to realize it. No one had ever taken the time to get to know him. No one except Pamela. <laughs> that man laughing? That's Pamela. Turns out she wasn't a doe-eyed innocent with Farrah Fawcett curls. She was a balding, mustachioed, middle-aged man named Donald Lowry. Here he is being interviewed by Shankar Vedantam in a 2015 episode of This American Life. Was any of it difficult to come up with these characters? Did the characters bore you? I mean, tell me about it as a writing project. <laughs> no. No, I look at the photograph of a girl and say, what kind of girl is this? 
Where is she from? What she like to do? It was fairly easy after a while. The first 20 were a little bit rough, but <laughs> the next 80 were not hard at all. And you enjoyed making up these characters? I loved it. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. I admit that. <laughs> and he loved the lifestyle that came with it. Remember those love offerings? The pocket change Pamela and the other women asked Joseph to send so they could buy stamps or whatever? It added up. Because Don wasn't just corresponding with Joseph. He was writing to more than 30,000 men. (laughs) And he was laughing all the way to the bank. He built a printing press so he could crank out letters at an industrial scale. He drove around in Rolls Royces and Jaguars from his 20-car fleet a fleet serviced by a full-time private mechanic. It was good to be Don or Linda or Terry or Pamela or whichever woman he was pretending to be that day. It was good right up until 1988 when Don was charged with mail fraud. Prosecutors claimed that Don had conned men like Joseph out of millions. A few had depleted their life savings. One guy was living in his car and sending the social security checks to his fictitious pen pal. A bunch of those men, including Joseph, showed up at Don's trial. They must have wanted to see him suffer, right? But no, they came to defend him. Don's letters, they said, had saved them from despair, isolation, addiction, even suicide. Sure, they realize now that it was all a lie, but they were grateful for that lie. As one of Don's dupes put it, I didn't care if they were real. They're nice letters and they make a man feel good. It felt good to offer car advice. It was nice to read about Gigi the Poodle. It was comforting to imagine that out there in the woodlands of Illinois, there was someone who had thought about them, cared about them, saw them for who they really were. When Shankar Vedantam, he's the interviewer you heard in that clip a minute ago, when he first heard the story of Don's Khan, he decided it was a classic case of a savvy swindler and some credulous fools. But as he thought more about it, his views began to shift. On the surface, the con seemed pretty cruel. Don preyed on vulnerable men, knowing that the more desperate they were, the easier they'd be to deceive. But the fact that those men then came to his defense suggested that they were somehow complicit in the deception. Even after they knew they'd been lied to, they were still grateful for what that lie had helped them do, overcome addiction, avoid suicide, stave off loneliness. Shankar realized that those letters had done some good. And that realization brought with it a vexing question. Is it possible that deception can sometimes be helpful? That question is at the heart of his new book, which he co-wrote with science writer Bill Messler. It's called Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. If the clip of Shankar's voice that I played earlier sounds familiar, that's because you probably heard him before. He's NPR's social science correspondent and the host of the wildly brilliant podcast, Hidden Brain. And today he's going to be speaking with one of our wildly brilliant Next Big Idea Club curators, Daniel Pink. They connected over video from their homes in Washington, D.C. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. 
Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the next Big Idea Club podcast. My name is Daniel Pink. I have the privilege of being one of the four curators of the next Big Idea Club. And I am joined today by Shankar Vedantam. He's the author of one of our selections, an amazingly interesting book. It's one of those books for me. I can't get out of my head. I keep thinking about it. Uh, it's called Useful Delusions. Uh, and he is here to talk about the ideas in this book, uh, how we delude ourselves, and what, if anything, we can or should do about it. So, Shankar, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. I'm really, really delighted to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you. I have to say, I really, I mean, I've known you for a while, but I, I, I found this book kind of revelatory in a, in a way. Like, you think you know your friends, and then you come in with something that just blows my mind entirely. I thought I had the entire Vedantam uh, repertoire in my head, but... Um, it's a really, really fascinating book. I, the, the standard question is, why'd you write this book? But I'd like you to take two notches backward and tell us, like, I don't know how old you were when you, when you, when you wrote this book, but tell us the story of your life up to then, in, in, in brief form. Where'd you grow up? What'd you study? How you came to, into this field? So let me start by saying, Dan, if it's a surprise to you that your friend would have written this book, I should tell you that it's a surprise to me that I have written this book. So if you had asked me five years ago or 10 years ago, this is not the kind of book that I would write. And the reason, as you know, Dan, is that I'm a tremendously rational and logical person. Indeed. I grew up in India. I studied engineering and I you know, loved uh, studying science and ideas related to math and science and logic. And I, you know, when I became a journalist, I gravitated to science journalism, partly because I loved the, the world of science and the world of reason. So for me to write a book that basically challenged the primacy of logic and reason is deeply disturbing for me. Uh, and so not just not just for you. And but but in many ways, the irony here, Dan, is that by following the data closely, I came to see that sometimes logic and reason do not accomplish what logic and reason set out to accomplish. The inexorable conclusion of logic and reason is that we are inherently self-delusional in some ways. Yeah, I think the belief that we have, I think many of us, and I certainly had this for many years, is that by thinking very carefully about the future and asking what it is that we wanted, we can find the best way forward. And I think to a large extent that is true. It is absolutely the case that logic and reason and science can point the best way forward. However, as we're interacting with ourselves and as we're interacting with our fellow human beings, it turns out that logic and reason sometimes produce counterintuitive and paradoxical effects where in some ways you don't end up getting to where you want to go. Yeah. Now I want to I'm going to take a step back here and, and talk about how did you I didn't how did you make the move from studying engineering to practicing journalism? Well, in many ways I was not a very good engineer and I don't <laughs> think I really enjoyed studying engineering very much, but I love the concepts. I love the idea of thinking clearly about something and thinking logically about something. I've always loved writing, I always loved uh, communicating, and after I left my engineering finished my engineering degree on a lark really, I took an internship at a, at a newspaper, and I found that it was transformative. I just realized that it, it combines so many of the things that I love to do. Uh, I eventually came to Stanford University, did a master's degree in journalism, and gravitated eventually to science journalism, and then specifically eventually to writing about the brain and writing about human behavior. So to my mind, it feels like there's a logical through line uh, sure. throughout my life, but it actually, if you look at my life, there's a lot of 
jagged edges and ragged changes. Well, I mean, I think that's true of any interesting person. Every interesting person has a has a jagged resume. It's like it's a set of squiggly lines. But I mean, it, to some extent, what you're doing, it, it's a transition from engineering. So making something to what you're doing now, which is in some ways reverse engineering, saying, trying to get under the hood, figure out how things work. Was there a moment that sparked you into pursuing this concept of self-delusions and the delusions that we all have? Yes. In many ways, it started with a story. And the story involves a very unusual con that unfolded in the United States in the 1970s and 1980s. So Donald Lowry was a balding, middle-aged guy living in a small Midwestern town. And he prided himself on being a writer. He always thought of himself as being a writer. And sometime in the early 70s, he did this very unusual thing where he invented various characters, young women, He called these women angels. And then he did something really surprising. He started writing love letters in their voices to thousands of men across the United States. Uh, When the men wrote back, he eventually sort of ensnared them in a group that he called the Church of Love. Some of the men believed they were actually corresponding with real women. Some of the men fell in love with the women they were corresponding with. In its heyday, the Church of Love had more than 30,000 members across the United States. Here's a part of the story that is astonishing. When Donald Lowry was finally arrested and brought to trial on charges of mail fraud, several members of his Church of Love showed up at his trial to defend him. And I found this absolutely astonishing. Once the con has been revealed, why would the marks show up to defend the con man? How can you have a bigger example of self-deception? And in many ways, it was the starting point for this book because I started out by asking the question, surely these people are just crazy. They're just nuts. Who would show up to defend the person who has deluded you? But the more I started to unpack and unravel the story of the Church of Love, I came to see the members of the Church of Love with a greater amount of compassion, with a greater amount of empathy. And I eventually got to the point where I basically said, there but for the grace of God, go I. And I realized that self-deception was not just affecting the members of the Church of Love. Self-deception affects all of us. It even affects me, which of course came to me uh, as a huge shock as somebody who had prided himself as being you know, the ultimate rationalist. Um, one of your ideas, one of the big ideas in this big idea book that you write about is that, um, and I think it's connected to the Church of Love story, is that self-deception can sometimes be good for us. So tell us what you mean by that and maybe give us a little bit more on the men who were defending this con man. What were they getting out of that? And what were they getting out of these what what I would look at as a rational person as fake relationships. Mm -hmm. So the members of the Church of Love fell into different categories. There were some people who said, you know, these letters are just an entertaining diversion. We're just playing a game here. There were other people who basically threw away the letters and said, we don't want to have anything to do with this. But there were other people who actually started corresponding. They would write back to these quote-unquote angels and build relationships. They would pour out their hearts and pour out their grievances and pour out their sorrows to the women. You know, when when the case came to trial and Donald Lowry was put on trial, the media fixated on the fact that some of the letters had involved salacious material. It involved, you know, nude photographs and various things involving sex. As it turned out, from Donald Lowry's point of view, sex was actually not the most powerful way that actually helped people become members. What he wanted people to do was, in fact, to fall in love. He wanted people who actually wanted relationships with the women, not just simply get something tawdry or something salacious. For the men who fell most deeply in love with the women, 
The letters from the angels were often not describing anything sexual. They were describing their day. They would talk to them about routine and mundane things that happened in their day. It was almost like the kind of thing that people in genuine relationships do at the end of the day when you're lying in bed with a loved one and you're sharing what happened in the course of your day and your loved one is sharing what happened to her day or his day. There's something deeply intimate that happens where you feel like you're in a bond with someone. You feel like you're in a dyad with someone. You feel close to someone. Many of the letters praised the members, you know, told them, I think you're a good person. I think you're a kind person. I think people have underestimated you. Believe in yourself. Have faith in yourself. Things are going to look up for you. And over the course of years, many members came to see these letters as essentially being a life jacket. And what's interesting here is I think this is how real relationships function in our lives. The real people in our lives also become life jackets. So just in this case, they weren't real relationships, but they felt like life jackets. And I think when the members were called upon to testify at the trial, they were not defending the con man. Mm -hmm. They were defending the life jackets that they had come to rely on. And these life jackets had become so important to them, these relationships had become so important to them that they didn't want to jettison them. You know, there was a wonderful movie some years ago called The Truman Show. Uh, For your listeners who aren't familiar with it, uh, Truman is in a reality show, but he's the only one who doesn't realize he's in a reality show. His wife, his best friend, his co-workers, the people who live in his town, they're all actors. He's the only one who's in the reality show, but he doesn't know that he's in the show. Now, he eventually pierces the deception, but it's very difficult for him to do it. And the reason it's difficult is not just because the deception was skillful, but because throwing the deception overboard required him to give up the relationships that were the most important things in his life. Over and over again, this this metaphor comes up in the book. When we become dependent on certain relationships, whether those relationships are personal, whether they are political, whether they have to do with our nations, we become deeply enmeshed in the stories of those relationships, and we will go to great lengths to defend those relationships. So when you ask, how can self-deceptions be useful? Think about the relationships in your life that are the most valuable relationships. Think about the relationships you have with your partner, the relationships that you have with your child, the relationships that you have with your friends. The closer your relationships to someone, the more likely you are to have self-deceptions in those relationships, and the more you're likely to see those self-deceptions actually be functional. There's a character in your book, Joseph, who is one of the men who was enmeshed in this seeming con, and he has a epistolary relationship with this woman named Pamela. Mm -hmm. And at one point she sends him a photograph. He puts the photograph on his frame. She sends him a pebble, I think, that she had found, what, like walking around somewhere. Mm -hmm. And and so he has these kinds of artifacts. And it it makes me think that there really is a real relationship. And I think that the, 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 um, I want to come back to relationships here in a moment, but I want to say that that the reason we do this Mm -hmm. is because, in part at least, because of evolution embedded in here, both explicitly and implicitly, is an evolutionary argument for self-deception. Why don't you walk us through that, and then we'll return to how that evolutionary impulse affects our, I mean, I want to say real relationships, but Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess Joseph had a real relationship. Affects the relationships that we have with people whom we've actually married or uh, have, have as children or friends or whatever. That's right. So at the core of the book, indeed, is an evolutionary argument. And it starts with the basic principle that the brain is an organ that evolved over hundreds of thousands of years of evolution, right? And so in many ways, our brains have evolved to solve the problems of adaptation and survival that confronted our ancestors. So the brains that we have are the results of those struggles that our ancestors had, in other words, to make sense of the past. 
It turns out that when we think of our brains in our modern day, we tend to think of the brain as being a computer. We tend to think our brains are basically designed to see reality accurately, to take in the world accurately, to process information accurately. This is what computers do. It turns out our brains are actually not interested in reality. Our brains have one goal and one goal only, which is to help us adapt to the world we're living in and to survive. If it can accomplish those things by seeing reality clearly, our brains are more than capable and happy to see reality clearly. However, if function, being functional, if surviving, if adapting, if doing well requires not seeing reality clearly, our brains are just as willing and just as eager not to see reality clearly. Let me give you the simplest example that I think you and I certainly know firsthand, Dan, but I think many of our listeners here will also know firsthand. When my daughter was born several years ago, I had the sense on the day that she was born that this was just the most miraculous thing that happened, not just in my life, not just in the life of everyone on the planet, but in the life of the history of the planet. Sure. There was nothing that was more important. There was no miracle that was more spectacular. There was no child who was born who was ever more special than my daughter. Many people who become parents note this. Now, anyone who's a rationalist would say, surely it cannot be the case that millions upon millions of parents can look at their children as being unique and special. They can't logically all be correct that their child is the most special child in the universe. But that's the way it feels when you become a parent, especially, I think, when you become a parent for the first time. Now, you would ask, why would evolution put in our heads this delusional belief about our children? And of course, when you think about the question, you ask the question that way, the answer is self-evident. Parenting is hard, it's difficult, it's frustrating, it's costly, it's time-consuming. If parents were to actually weigh the cost-benefit relationship of having children, many people might logically conclude parenting is really far more trouble than it's worth. And so in some ways, our delusional beliefs about our children are designed in some ways to hide from us the cost-benefit equation. You can see very quickly why it is from an evolutionary standpoint, the delusional belief, the delusional love that parents have for their children, it might not be seeing reality accurately, but it's extremely functional for parents, it's extremely functional for our children, and it's extremely functional for our genes. Uh, you, you summarize this brilliantly. I mean, it, for, for those of you who are into... Uh, evolutionary tattoos. This is worth getting tattooed, where you say evolution and natural selection ultimately doesn't care about what's true. It cares about what works. And that is it right there. And once you start thinking of it that way, to me, once I started thinking about it in that very explicit way, it's like, well, there are delusions everywhere. So let's keep with relationships. You have another idea in your book where you say delusional beliefs are vitally important to making us happy. Talk about it in terms of our romantic relationships, our partner relationships. So a wide variety of studies have found that when we have positive views about our partners, even delusionally positive views about our partners, we are likely to be in happier relationships. And in some ways, this is not a surprising idea. If you believe that your partner is kinder and more beautiful and more intelligent and wiser than other people, you're more likely to say, I want to stay with my partner. I want to be with my partner. And it turns out the delusional beliefs, the optimistic beliefs, the positive illusions we have about our partners just like the positive illusions we have about our children, are one way that we can buffer ourselves against some of the challenges that come within relationships. So relationships come with frictions, they come with challenges, there are temptations outside of relationships. The way in which evolution has figured out a way to keep us within these relationships, to keep us within these bonds, in some ways is to encourage us to have positive delusions about our partner. So let's say, Dan, now that the pandemic in the United States is easing, let's say you and I went on a road trip this coming year, 
And we stopped by every wedding that's happening in the United States this coming year. And we asked couples oh, on we their could, wedding uh, seriously, day. Seriously, right now we could pitch that as a Netflix series, but that's <laughs> another story. <laughs> so for our Netflix series, we go and check out every wedding that's unfolding in the United States. And we ask couples this very simple question. On their wedding day, we ask them, what are your odds of getting divorced? Now, if you were logical, if you were rational, if you looked at the statistics, you would say, there's no reason to think I'm particularly different from anyone else. The odds of getting divorced are about 40 to 60%. All you know, marriages, depending on their first, second, or third marriages, they have about a 40 to 60% of ending in divorce. I expect that I have, you know, let's say, a 50% chance of getting divorced. I would bet you two things. One, almost no one on their wedding day would tell you they have a 50% chance of getting divorced. And two, yeah. someone who tells you on their wedding day that they have a 50% chance of getting divorced that is not a person who is about to embark on a very happy marriage. I found it really interesting and actually somewhat heartening uh, as the lesser of uh, the two uh, people in my partnership uh, that partners tend to overrate, essentially, their romantic partners. They, they look at their partners through rose-colored glasses. Tell us a little bit about that research. I found that both interesting and heartening. Yes, and what's interesting is not just that they overrate their partners in general, but they tend to overrate their partners on the dimensions that they themselves care about. So let's say, for example, Dan, that I am somebody who, who values empathy and, yeah. and compassion. And let's say you and I were in a relationship, an intimate relationship, and we were married to each other, I might see you as being more empathetic and compassionate, not just that other people think, but that you yourself think. And again, this is not surprising. The more I have positive my positive views about my partner in the dimensions that I care about, the more likely I am to say, this person is actually for me, I'm likely to be happier. Now, I just wanna flag one thing. In almost every case that we can talk about deceptions, the subtitle of my book is The Power and Paradox of yeah. the Self-Deceiving Brain, because right. there is a paradox here. And the right. paradox is, even as self-deception keeps us happier in relationships, even as it helps us build longer-term relationships, self-deception can also keep us in bad relationships. There are relationships all over the place where people stay in abusive relationships, where they deceive themselves about how good their partners are, about how the kind their partners are. You know, you have people who say, yes, my partner beat me up yesterday, but he really loves me. He really cares about me. He's really kind to me. The same forces, the same forces of self-deception that can keep us in happy relationships can also keep us in unhappy relationships. This is the paradox of yeah. self-deception. It can simultaneously do terrible harm, which is, I think, the way most of us think of self-deception. The contribution, I think, of my book is that we've ignored the part of self-deception where it can actually do good to us. Is there a way for individuals to at least make that kind of assessment on their own about, you know, is this, is this del a harmful delusion or is it, a, is it a useful delusion? I think it's really difficult for individuals to do this, do this on their own. And I think there's, yeah. there's two ways to do this, but I think both involve in some ways stepping outside yourself. The first is to ask yourself, what are the outcomes of my self-deception? Mm. Is the outcome of my self-deception, my delusional beliefs about mm. my daughter, does it prompt me now to be a very dedicated father, to be a caring father, to look out for my child, to help her be the best that she can be, if those are the cases, if the outcomes of my self-deception about my daughter are that I'm outward facing, I'm compassionate, I'm caring, I'm giving more than I have, I would call those good delusions. On the other hand, if my daughter, God forbid, turns out to be a serial killer, and I, my self-deceptions de about her prevent me from seeing the terrible yeah. harm that she's doing, yeah. that is not a good thing. 
The second thing that I think we can do is ask others to give us feedback. So I think others can see our self-deceptions more clearly than we can. So if other people tell you, look, you're heading down a path where your self-deceptions are causing harm to other people, listen to them carefully because in some ways they can see you more clearly than you can see yourself. Yeah. And there is a paradox also. There's kind of an adjacent paradox between uh, accuracy and buoyancy. Um, you know, you, you talk about some research that showed that people who are depressed are actually better observers, more accurate observers of what's really going on, more in touch with the reality. Mm-hmm. So, it's that, that's, so there's a paradox there. It's, well, should we be encouraging people to be accurate? I think through much of the 20th century, Dan, people who are thinking about mental health and mental illnesses tended to assume that people with mental illnesses were seeing the world delusionally, and people who are mentally healthy were seeing the world realistically. Now, there are certain mental illnesses that, in fact, do involve very serious delusions. You know, an illness like schizophrenia, for example, you're actually seeing hallucinations, you're hearing voices. Those are not the delusions that I'm talking about. But over the last 30 or 40 years, research has actually shown that people with certain kinds of mental illnesses are actually able to see the world more clearly than people who are quote-unquote mentally healthy. So people with some forms of depression and anxiety, for example, turn out to see the world more realistically than people who are mentally healthy. Now, this raises a really interesting conundrum. Do you tell people the most important thing is to see the truth and to see reality correctly? Or do you tell people the most important thing is to be well-adjusted and to be happy? And it turns out that much of what psychotherapy might actually do, be doing is, in fact, be helping people see the world through rose-tinted glasses, or at least put their troubles, put their traumas into perspective, by which I mean moving it off-center. All of us have been through a terrible pandemic this past year. People who, in some ways, might be seeing reality accurately might well tell themselves something incredibly unexpected happened to us 15, 16 months ago. It's transformed our lives. Millions of people around the world are dead. Tens of millions of people have lost their jobs. The consequences are terrible. Let me shrink into myself and keep from going out because who knows when the next pandemic is going to come because the truth is the next pandemic could be right around the corner. And yet many of us don't do that. Many of us are saying, great, liberation is now finally at hand. You know, we can go about our lives. In some ways, we're bouncing back, but we're bouncing back in some ways by hiding from ourselves the true consequences and true scope of the terrible things that could happen to us. This is, again, at the paradox. From the point of view of the brain, from the point of view of adaptation and survival, is it actually functional for creatures to dwell on all the terrible things that could happen to them, or is it actually more functional for us to actually be optimistic? Evolution has, in some ways, answered that question by basically saying being healthy involves seeing the world optimistically. Coming up after the break... Daniel Pink says he has two superpowers in life, knowing lots of useless sports trivia and finding good deals on wine. He and Shankar discuss what one of those superpowers has to do with self-deception. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I feel like I have two kind of superpowers in life. One is sports trivia, and the other 
is <laughs> finding good deals on wine. And so I want to talk about some of the research on wine, because I think for the our listeners out there who are in business, particularly consumer products businesses or any kind of consumer-facing business, yes. there is something fascinating going on in the world of wine. So tell us a little bit about the wine research. Absolutely. So a variety of studies have looked at the idea of how prices of products are related to how we relate to products. So a specific study that I mentioned in the book you know, had a sort of a very tricky experiment where you have different bottles of wine marked at different prices, $5, $10, all the way up to $90. But because it's a psychology experiment, there's a little twist here, which is you've taken the wine from the $10 bottle and you've poured it into the $90 bottle. So in other words, you're drinking $10 wine from the $10 bottle and you're drinking the same $10 wine from the $90 bottle. Now, you won't be surprised to hear, Dan, that when you do this, many people report that $10 wine from the $90 bottle tastes better than the $10 wine from the $10 bottle. But here's where the study gets really interesting. When you put people in brain scans and you actually evaluate what's happening in their heads as they're drinking the wine, it turns out the reward centers in the brain are activated to a greater extent when people drink the $10 wine from the $90 bottle. So in other words, it's not just that people are deducing that the $90 bottle of wine must be better, so therefore they say they like it better. They're actually experiencing it as better, right? So this raises a really interesting question. If people are actually experiencing greater subjective pleasure from drinking $10 wine from a $90 bottle, surely then you have to say they're actually getting their money's worth by spending $90 on that bottle of wine, because after all, that's the point of a bottle of wine. It's to produce subjective pleasure. If drinking the wine because it's a better wine gives you subjective pleasure, and drinking the wine because it's labeled to be a more expensive wine gives you subjective pleasure, they both amount to the same thing, you know, what should marketers be doing? In some ways, one of the implications of this is don't mark your products down too low, because when you mark your products down too low, you think you're giving people a good deal, but part of what you might be doing is you might be robbing the subjective pleasure that people get. Now, of course, if you get a really great deal on a bottle of wine, that might be a different source of pleasure, where I've actually think that it's a $90 bottle, I've somehow managed to snag it at $10 a bottle, that might also produce subjective pleasure, you know, Godspeed if that's the case. Yeah, I mean, that to me is one of the most highest and exalted moments of life, of getting a good deal, <laughs> so, so that could be. But it's, it's so fascinating about this because it's also, in, in the, in, in, when you write about this, it, this, is, this is not only just civilian wine drinkers, these are critics. Uh, and, and I think what's so interesting about this and, and what I like it as, a, as an example is that the wine and the glasses, they are chemically the same. And yet yes. the experience of it, and we know not only the reported subjective experience of it, but our measure of that experience shows yes. it's different and more pleasurable. And so I'm like, go for it, you know? Yes. Now, go- I will say that the effect is probably larger among people who are novices than among people who are experienced. And this is also true for many other consumer products. So, for example, I'm not a golfer, but yeah. it turns out that amateur golfers who are given golf clubs that are said to be owned by professional golfers. In other words, if you say, yeah, here yeah. are Tiger Woods' clubs, go out on the links and play with them, you're likely to play better because you believe you're holding something magical belonging to Tiger Woods. Now, at a very high level, at the professional level, does it make a difference? Probably not. But at the level of ordinary amateurs performing things, the violin you use to play your amateur musical concert, or the golf clubs that you're using, or the squash rackets you're using, it probably does make a difference. And the brand name objects that we think we buy, in fact, are conferring something to us. They might not actually be materially different. In fact, they might actually be the same objects. But if we believe the story 
behind the objects that we buy, those stories have real power. Now, let's, let's move to another idea that you have here, which is related to artifacts and stories. And you write, there are no atheists in foxholes. There's several parts of this book that talk in a, a really a way that for me was, was just really fascinating and helped me tease out some things about religion, which, which I've always found is a, is a somewhat difficult subject to write about because you have this um, very kind of polarized world and you write a little bit about it. So tell us about what does religion tell us about useful delusions? So one of the great mysteries from the point of view of the social sciences is if you look across countries and you look at across cultures and you look down history, you find that human beings in almost all of these cultures and societies and, and countries have adopted beliefs about the supernatural, that these beliefs seem to come easily to the mind, they come effortlessly to the mind. The nature of the supernatural beliefs might change over time. So what the ancient Greeks and Romans believed might not be what people today believe. But in general, the overall sense is that people are likely to believe supernatural beliefs. There's something about the mind that lends itself in some ways to be fertile ground for supernatural beliefs and thinking. Now, the typical way that most people who are logical and rational look at this is they basically look down with contempt at people yeah. who have religious beliefs. And I have to confess that for a long time in my own life, I think I did this. I think hmm. I saw people who had religious beliefs and I said, how, could, how is it possible that you can believe, observe things about supernatural events that could not have transpired? And this was a very strong point of view advanced by a group of writers often known collectively as the New Atheists, uh, folks like the late Christopher Hitchens. Uh, you write about Richard Dawkins in your book, the, the eminent British biologist, who were saying people who believe in religion are delusional, that religion is a source of ill, uh, that people yes. are believing in, in fantasies, and that it's harmful for them as individuals and for society writ large. And yes. you, don't, you don't agree with that. That's right. I think many of them are basically making this argument. They're basically saying, let's look at the truth claims made by religions, the factual yeah. claims made by religions. If those factual claims don't stand up to scrutiny, or in fact, if we can disprove them, if we can prove that you know, a religious text says that the, the earth is a few hundred years old or a few thousand years old, and we can in fact prove the earth is millions or billions of years old, that must mean that everything that's in the religious text is worthless and should be thrown off. I think this is actually a mistake. I've yeah. come to think that this is a really flawed way to understand what religions do for two different reasons. And let me go into each of them. Yeah. The first is, a lot of social science research is now asking, what role do religions actually play in our societies? And it turns out that religions may have come into being at a point where human societies were transitioning from hunter-gatherer societies, very small groups of 100 to 150 people where everyone knew one another, to much larger groups where we constantly met people who were strangers. And part of what religions did and religious norms did is they established rules of conduct, norms of conduct that basically said, if Dan and I belong to the same religious group, if we worship the same God, if we believe the same things are going to happen to us in the afterlife, we are going to treat one another with a certain amount of respect, a certain amount of care and caution. We're going to be honest brokers with one another. So religions in some ways help to regulate functioning. And you can see this throughout history in many ways. Religions have morphed as the needs of different societies have morphed. They've played this very important social role. At a personal level, though, it's actually a little absurd to make the case that just because something is not factually accurate, it has no value in your life. So think for this, think for example, Dan, you read a beautiful novel or you watch a fantastic movie, a very sad movie or a very sad novel, and you emerge from the movie theater or you emerge from reading the novel and you have tears running down your face and I'm standing outside wearing my rationalist hat and I ask you, so you're weeping because of what happened in the movie or what you read in the book. Were any of those characters real? Did any of those events actually happen? Is any of this in fact true? 
And he would say, no, the characters are fictional. They were imaginative. They were nothing in fact. And I would ask you how absurd it is that you're crying. Why are you crying over events that never took place? And you would tell me you're misunderstanding what a novel is. You're misunderstanding what a movie is. It might in fact be that the characters or the stories in fact are not true, but the emotions that I experienced as I watched the movie or as I read the novel, those emotions, in fact, are true. Those emotions are speaking to really important things of what it means to be a human being. They're speaking to how I think about the relationships in my life. They're pulling me deeper in contact with things that are of great value in my life. I think this is a much better way to understand religious stories. So there's a story in, in Hindu mythology about the monkey god uh, Hanuman, who at one point is supposed to have lifted up an entire mm. mountain and flown across a subcontinent carrying the mountain in his hand. Now, do I believe that actually a creature lifted up an entire mountain and flew across the subcontinent? No, at a factual level, I don't believe it. But I don't think that's what the story is about. The story is really about the power of devotion, about the power of commitment, about the power of love. And I think that's what the story is trying to communicate. And people who read the story are listening to the story at that emotional level. And yeah. when you ask people, what is the value you're deriving from religion and mock the truth claims of religion, in some ways you're missing the most important component, which is the emotional relationships people have with religions and relig religious texts. Yeah, I think that is such a powerful argument. And just to be personal a little bit, it is very helpful to me as someone who was raised in a fairly religious household who then said, wait a second, what? <laughs> this, is, this is nonsense. And then came away from it saying, no, religious belief is bunk, it's delusional. And then later in life came to say, wait a second, this is doing something for people and that's okay. But I think the analogy to the experience of reading a novel or watching a movie and being emotionally moved by that things that are not true. The fact yes. that they're not true doesn't make it less legitimate as an emotional experience. The other fascinating thing about religion is people who have religious beliefs in general are healthier. There's some great research I never heard of out of Des Moines that you write about. Tell us about that. Yeah, so there's been a variety of research studies that suggest that people who have religious beliefs actually have better mental health, better functioning, better lifespans. And in some, there was one particular study in Des Moines that actually suggested that people who were religious outlived people who are not religious by as much as 10 years, which is sort of the difference between people who are smokers and non-smokers. So it means the effects are not trivial. But, you know, you don't actually have to go all that that far to, or even to look at research studies. I know in my own life, just in the course of the last several months of the pandemic, many people I know who are living in India, for example, right now, which is going through a particularly oh difficult gosh, yeah. time in the pandemic, the worse the pandemic becomes, the more religious people become. And the more, mm. the more people turn to, to their faith as an anchor that protects them against the challenges of daily life. And in many ways, this is the way to think about self-deceptions in general, not to think about them negatively, but to ask the question, question, what is the functional purpose that this belief is serving? Yeah. How is it serving a purpose? And if you start with that question, you, ask, you get a very simple answer. People are living lives of great uncertainty, great unpredictability, great pain, and they're looking for sources of comfort. They're looking for sources of stability. A few months ago, Dan, I was traveling a few hours away from my home in Washington, D.C., 
I suffered a retina detachment. Mm. I was unloading a bike from the car. The handlebar spun around, hit me below the eye. And over the course of the next 24 hours, I could literally see my vision in one eye disappearing in front of my face. And I, I knew what this was. We have a family history of retinal problems. I couldn't find a doctor. I was really, I was panic stricken. I eventually found someone in a city that I had never been to in my life. He very kindly opened his practice for me at nine o'clock in the night. And he told me that if we weren't into surgery in the next several minutes, I was going to lose sight in the yeah. eye altogether. And at that point, I did what all of us do in the situation. I didn't look at Yelp reviews or doctor <laughs> reviews or find out whether there was a second opinion. I put all my faith and trust in this man. Now, he, as he turned out, he was a wonderful doctor, but if he had been a charlatan, I would have been just as likely to put my faith in him because my faith was not because of him. My faith was because of my own vulnerability. My faith in him was an outgrowth of my own concerns and fear and panic. And in some ways, this is the right way to think about self-deceptions in general, which is to ask the compassionate question, what is the origins of where this is coming from? Right. What is the gap this is filling in people's lives? Exactly. When we look with contempt at people who have self-deceptions, in many ways, what we're forgetting is we are not in the foxhole with them. And were we in the foxhole with them, we would very likely think exactly the same way they do. Yeah, yeah. Even that way of looking at things, which is, not asking, is this claim true, but what is this claim doing for someone is, to me, a, a really powerful way to shift our thinking about it. But you also talk about this in terms of nations, because at some level, if you look at Earth from above, there are no nations. You have land masses, but nations are themselves a kind of a fiction, but mm -hmm. they're a functional fiction. Tell us a little bit about about nations and self-delusion. Yeah, so imagine for a second, you know, there's a, the old story of the proverbial anthropologist from Mars, but let's say there was an anthropologist who came to us from another galaxy, and this person travels across vast realms of darkness and space and time, and then comes to this tiny little speck of a planet in this tiny obscure solar system, and finds that there are some eight million species on this planet, but this one species, human beings, have divided up this planet into 190 different territories and believe so fervently in the reality of these territories that we've armed ourselves with nuclear weapons yeah. and we're willing to destroy one another yeah. and this little planet we have over the integrity of these nations. Surely this anthropologist from another galaxy would say, this is a grand delusion. What is wrong with these people that they believe, not just that they've invented these things called nations, they've drawn these artificial lines in the sand, but they believe in them so passionately that they're willing not just to destroy each other, they're willing to destroy their entire planet over the integrity of these lines. So I think when you think about delusions in this way, that delusions are inventions of the human mind, you would have to concede that nations in some ways are very profound delusions. And Exactly as we've discussed with other elements of the delusions that we've talked about, the delusions that nations do produce great good and mm -hmm. they also produce great harm. So the fact that we think of ourselves as Americans, that we think of ourselves as belonging to a common country, allows us to accomplish great things together, allows us to march shoulder to shoulder with one another. If there's a natural disaster in Texas, somebody in Maryland can say, I feel connected to the person in Texas, let me see how I can help. We can respond to common enemies, common threats. We defeated fascism and we defeated Hitler in World War II because we stood together as a nation. So nations accomplish great things because they have these bonds that hold us together. Of course, even a cursory glance at the history of the 20th century shows you all the ways in which nations can do terrible things and the delusions of nations, how they can lead to war and to genocide, how they can lead to terrible, terrible things. This is the paradox. Self-deception can simultaneously accomplish great things. It can also produce terrible harms. 
How do we mitigate those harms when they do arise? Shankar has answers coming up after the break. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Welcome back to the show. As Shankar points out, one of the paradoxes of self-deception is that it can accomplish great things and cause great harm. So what do you do when delusions turn dangerous? You, you say that some delusions are dangerous, but logic alone cannot defeat them. Yeah, you know, a few years ago, Dan, I was having a dinner with a friend whom I knew from college. I knew him from many years ago. Very smart guy. We were very close to one another. And over dinner, he told me that he was fairly convinced that the United States was behind the 9-11 attacks. And he had an elaborate theory of how the CIA and FBI planned the attacks, that in some ways, this is why the FBI let various terrorists into the country, and this is why the CIA and the FBI didn't share information when they had information about the impending attacks, and how eventually this this train of attacks, uh, the 9-11 attacks, led to the U.S. invasion of Iraq, and the U.S. was looking for a pretext to invade Iraq, and the 9-11 attacks allowed the U.S. to basically pursue various aims it had in the Middle East, including, you know, getting access to oil fields and so forth. So I thought that he was wrong. I thought that he was delusional. And I spent the next 90 minutes at dinner arguing with him. I told him, first of all, you've never been to Washington. If you've been to Washington, you would know that if three people know something in Washington, it cannot be a secret anymore in Washington. Washington leaks like, leaks like anything. You know, There's no way that a vast conspiracy involving hundreds and hundreds yeah. of people could possibly be kept a secret. And then I made various logical arguments, rational arguments, timeline arguments. And at the end of the dinner, all that had happened was that we had become a little less friendly toward one another. I certainly hadn't convinced him, and he was convinced that I was the one who had the delusion. If I was to meet him again, if we were to have that same conversation again, mm -hmm. I would approach that conversation very differently. I would not start with logic and I would not start with reason. I would start instead by asking him questions. I would ask him why it is he believed what he believed. I would ask him to explain his own beliefs to me. I would ask him, tell me why you think what you say is true. Tell me how it is possible that what you say might not be true. What would have to happen for your belief to in fact be disconfirmed? Psychologists sometimes call, uh, have an interesting concept called the illusion of explanatory depth. Yeah. And the idea of the illusion of explanatory depth is that all of us believe we understand things better than we can actually understand them. But when we're called upon to actually explain things, when we're called upon to say, all right, I think I know how a bicycle works, show me how a bicycle works, people quickly realize that they actually have no idea how a bicycle works. And in some ways, being asked to demonstrate our knowledge is actually a powerful way of showing us the limitations of our own knowledge. In many ways, I think the challenge when we're trying to disabuse people of crazy views, the challenge is not how do we present information from the outside that gets them to change their views. The challenge is how do we get them from the inside to start to question their own views, to start to question the veracity of their own views. 
Asking questions is a powerful way. Asking people to explain their own views to us is a powerful way to sort of disabuse them of their views. And in some ways, being gentle of showing them that we understand the underlying emotions that are spurring their beliefs, I think is also very important to basically say, Yes, you know, you might not want to take a vaccine and I might want to take a vaccine, but I understand the reason you don't want to give your va a vaccine to your child is not because you're delusional, but it's because you love your child. In other words, we start from a point of common ground. We start from the point of view of saying, I'm giving my child a vaccine because I love my child. I recognize that you are not giving a vaccine to your child because you love your child. So we start from the common ground that we're both parents who love our children. We've come to different conclusions about what to do. But once you establish that common ground, once you get people to understand, you're not questioning their love for themselves, their love for their families, their love for their communities, their love for their nations. You are assuming good intent in some ways, you disabuse and you dismantle a lot of the conflict that actually leads to pointless argument. I mean, what you're really calling for here is empathy, right? Just like taking the other person's point of view, understanding their feelings. And for me, Shankar, I thought what was so interesting about this book is that I, I feel like it made me more empathetic. Like if, if I had a conversation with your friend who believed that 9-11 was a conspiracy, I would pull out every rhetorical sledgehammer I possibly could. Mm -hmm. And your book helped convince me that that isn't the case. Let's come back and maybe close on this. It's like, why do people have these views? At some level, my position, the position that I just articulated, is a position of privilege. And, and so tell us what you mean by that. Because again, one of the many things this book made me do is say, wait a second, my being dismissive of people with, with certain kinds of religious beliefs, perhaps, yeah. or conspiracy theorists or anti-vaxxers, uh, Mr. Smarty Pants Dan being dismissive of them is actually a very privileged position. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, many years ago, I actually had the, the honor and the opportunity to visit Richard Dawkins at his home in Oxford. And uh, this was right before he'd actually written the book, The God Delusion, which laid out the, right. the new atheist argument. And I asked him this question. I said, so Richard, so assume, you know, there's somebody who's suffering from a terminal illness and uh, they have just a few months left to live or maybe a few weeks left to live. And their life is made more bearable by the belief that there is going to be an afterlife. Do you believe it's your responsibility and your job to come in and disabuse them of their religious belief because you believe their belief is wrong? And in some ways, it's the more extreme version of the general argument that I'm making, which is if you put yourself in the shoes of the people who are experiencing the challenges that they're experiencing, you might in fact see the world very much the way that they do. And the fact that you don't see the world the way they do might really be just a reflection of the fact that you're not in that situation. Mm -hmm. You're not in the foxhole with them. Mm -hmm. I was not living in a small town in Texas. My parents had not just died and my business had not just gone under. I was not desperately lonely as Joseph Enriquez was when he first started receiving letters from the Church of Love. I had not put myself in his shoes. So when I look with contempt at the fact that he fell for this scam and that he was willing to deceive himself to the point of testifying on behalf of Don Lowry at the trial, in some ways, I am speaking from a position of privilege. I'm speaking from the outside and judging him, but I'm judging him because I'm not walking in his shoes. I think absolutely right. You're right, Dan. The central message of this book really is the importance of empathy. And not just from the point of view that that's the nice thing to do or the right thing to do, both of which are true, but also that it's the more effective thing to do. When was the last time 
someone hectored you, badgered <laughs> you, and looked at you with contempt, and you said, wow, You're right. thank you so much for changing my mind on this really important part of my life. I'm now henceforward completely converted to your point of view. That never happens. And so that should teach us that if in fact we want to be effective, we're gonna be far more likely to be effective by starting with empathy. It's a great point and a great book. Uh, the book is Useful Delusions. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Dan. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Would you like to hear from Shankar Vedantam what he considers the five biggest ideas from Useful Delusions? Download the Next Big Idea app and check out Shankar's Book Bite. And why stop there? In our app, you'll also find 12-minute audio summaries of groundbreaking new books, Zoom discussions with your favorite authors, and mind-blowing e-courses. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store. If you love what we're doing, I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to share any thoughts on this and other episodes on Twitter. I'm at Rufgrisk. That's at R-U-F-G-R-I-S-C. Special thanks to Daniel Pink and Shankar Vedantam. Shankar's book, Useful Delusions, is available wherever books are sold, including the Next Big Idea app. Caleb Bissinger wrote and produced this episode. Our executive producer is Michael Kovnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound design by Emma Erdbrink. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week.